We've been on a series going through Joshua, and today we end it. It's been seven weeks we've been looking through this book, looking through the, the key points, looking at moments that illustrate its strongest themes and the things that we are meant to remember from this book, recorded for the sake of remembering. When I lose something, I have to say, I wait a very long time before I tell other people that it's lost. And I don't do this because I'm ashamed I lost it. I wait because it delays the time between that to when I'm going to hear everybody say the same thing. Where was the last place you had it? That question over and over again, as if I haven't thought of that. And, but it, it's the first thing everyone says, well, where was the last place you had it? And like, oh, you're right. My car, I forgot to think about that. And what makes it maddening is that that advice is accurate and true. That's the best way to look for things we lost. Where was the last place you found it? And I think that's what makes it mad. It's maddening because there's no new method to finding lost things. It remains the same. It's as ubiquitous as advice of, uh, did you, you drink more water? It seems drinking more water fixes everything. I don't feel good. I got my stomach hurts. Drink more water. I've, I've got a headache. Drink more water. My doctor told me that when you take an aspirin and you drink it with water, you're likely helping the headache more with the water you drank the pill with in the aspirin. Drinking water seems to fix everything. There's just certain bits of advice that there's really nothing new under the sun. And our thing isn't to, that to solve life problems, we need new solutions. As much as it is, we need to remember the good ones, the old ones, the ones we remembered or are supposed to remember. And so it is with God. We can receive new revelation, and, and I think we certainly do. But the key to this most often is to remember, to not let it go out of our minds. Today you could be changed forever, not by something incredibly new, but by stopping and dwelling on and remembering the good things God did do in your life the things that we put out of our mind and we don't, we stop and we think, man, I, I forgot about what an enormous deal that was. I was actually um, just talking today about my brother who was healed of epilepsy and it was, they, they measured it. I mean, this is a medical miracle that probably still makes Kaiser doctors angry to this day. They, they took the scans. They said, there it is. It will be there forever. This will be his life now. My mom took him to, uh, of all things, a Benny Hinn crusade at the Tacoma Dome in Washington he went there, they prayed for him. My dad was out of town, has a vision, and he calls up and he says, hey, I feel like Jake just got healed. And she said, yeah, he just got prayed for. Goes back to Kaiser, she says, I think my son was miraculously healed by the Lord. That doesn't go over well at Kaiser Permanente. They say, well, we're not gonna scan it again. It's there, there's no reason. Medically, this is impossible. She demands, demands, they do it, and it's gone. The scan shows there's no brain spike. His brain's normal, they can't explain it. Jake's never had another seizure in his life. And I was telling that story today. I was like, man, that is, that's a crazy story. I don't think of that story very often. But it's worth remembering. If we were just to dwell on that stuff, it changes our lives. We need to remember that one of the greatest warnings of the book of Romans is that humanity fell from universally knowing God. Think about that. There are people that do not know, don't believe. And there was a time that everybody knew Cain knew when he went and started the city of Nod. He knew who God was, though he was wicked. Seth knew who God was. Adam, Eve, they knew who God was. Yet Paul teaches that people stopped thanking God and they began to forget him. 
and that he ran out of their minds as they didn't count their blessings anymore. Remembering the works of God will remember God. And if you remember God, you will not lose him. The book of Joshua ends the way it needed to, the way it was meant to. Joshua's ministry ends the way it was meant to. It goes back to the beginning. It recaps all things up until the ending. This is one of my favorite things that happens in, in television or books, movies. It happens in um, To Kill a Mockingbird as uh, uh, Scout Finch remembers all the events of the book, but now from the perspective of Boo Radley, and it goes back and goes over her own prejudice towards him, and she recants everything, all the hijinks, everything with her friends, and it's this tearful ending because I don't read fast, so that's like months of me reading. <laughs> and now I'm reading the last chapter, it goes over it, and it's so moving to recap and to remember those things and to take them with you. And that's the way this book ends. The call to Joshua that we read in the beginning, Moses is dead, my servant is dead, be strong and courageous. Don't let the book of the law pass from your lips. Be strong and courageous, do what the Lord has for you to do, and he will be with you. This call gets passed now from who was once a young man and is now an old man to those that are being left behind. Joshua's calling is renewed for this next generation and incredible courage erupts when they start thinking and talking about just what is it that the Lord has done. Many years have transpired. Joshua and Caleb are old men. They were young when they started, and the time has passed. Elders have been selected among the people, and this will be the new government for the nation of Israel going forward. It will be elder-led, people representing tribes coming together and holding tribunals. There will not be a central leader. So Joshua summons all of these elders to himself after he's appointed them and selected them. And as it went from Moses to Joshua, it's now going to go from Joshua to the elders, and the call remains the same. I think what's also particularly interesting about the last time Joshua addresses the nation through its elders, the last time that he basically, Joshua speaks to Israel in the scene, it's the most prophetic we've ever seen him. He's had times where he's relayed divine understanding, that he has said things the Lord has told him to share. This is a time that is a thus saith the Lord. He is the mouthpiece of God. This is what God's saying to you and everything that we will read in a moment coming from the mouth of Joshua, is a prophecy from God to the people. It is a great and final outpouring that at the end of these things, God is so faithful and just tips the cup over and Joshua is filled all the more. The apostle Paul echoes this statement centuries later when he's about to pass the torch. He says uh, in 2 Timothy, he writes to his protege Timothy, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now this old man Joshua has fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. And he's ending strong in the presence of God. And as he passes this on, he passes on things that are critical. What do you need to remember going forward? What are the things that need to be on your mind? Remembrance being so much where we dwell and grow with the Lord. So let's read uh, chapter 24. 
We'll read a few verses at a time. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, uh, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. And I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down into Egypt. There's this amazing picture here that we miss. Abraham, the the righteous man, I mean, he is used over and over in the New Testament as an example of faith, an example of someone who who bravely leaves a place where he was established to live for a city that was not his own and live for a God that was new to him. But we forget that part that was new to him, not selected because he was special, that Abraham, this father of all believers, grew up worshiping pagan gods. They have to remember their humble beginnings. If they're going to take this forward, it can't be simple things only to them that matter in the moment, but they have to remember where they came from. Because Israel's later going to prove, and we prove in ourselves every single day, that taking credit for God's blessings in our lives leads to losing him. It leads to us losing our memory of him. We cannot forget the humility of our beginning, that we stand built up on legs that he gave us. Gratitude, to keep, uh, gratitude keeps God in our memory. And it's not that we would seriously just forget God. We would completely forget, like, what, G-O-D, who is that? The point is, is that we would live as something that I, I once heard, and it's still a terrifying sentence to me today, as a Christian atheist. It's where it, our belief system, like, like we believe, and I would subscribe and check a box, I believe in Jesus. But in every area of my life, how I, how I lead, how I live, um, how I, the decisions and how I treat people, the way I look at my own life, finances, progression, it would be entirely devoid of God. It refers to a believer who believes in God in theory, but in every way of life, they navigate it as if they're an atheist. If God saved you from crippling debt and saved you from digging yourself into an enormous problem, when you're up on top, it would be critical that you remember that. That you wouldn't call yourself a financial wizard, that you worked your way out of it, that you're so great and smart at what you've done. It would be critical for you to remember, God saved me from that. If God healed you from an addiction in your life and saved you from it, it would be critical for you to know that you are not superior to other people that are still in it. The only thing that divides you from them is that you are saved miraculously and that God alone gets the honor and the glory for that. What happens is that if we start to think we did it, we begin to remove God from areas of life when saying it's not his domain. I dug myself out of my debt. The financial stuff is more about working and going really hard and saving, and it's about the strength that was within me. It's not really a God 
domain issue. This is what forgetting God looks like. Can you see how refusing to remember God's works in your life leads to losing our connection with him? We really aren't strong unless he made us strong. If they're going to remember everything that they have, they need to remember their humble beginnings, that they were completely lost. Interesting how it ends, though, isn't it? This portion where he's reminding them about the life of the patriarchs. And then Jacob's people went down into Egypt, into slavery. Why would God put them in slavery, and yet Esau immediately inherits the hill country of Seir? No waiting, just gets it. Because I'll tell you, Scripture is very clear on a comparison of these two brothers. Esau, who was the eldest, he was the heir, he was supposed to inherit God's plan for the family and to lead them, did not want it. He didn't want the sacrifice. He felt that it was something that wasn't worth having and wanted to live his own life, and he had forsaken it and sold it for nothing, counting it as worthless. And yet Jacob gave up everything for it, trading everything to take hold of that blessing. Esau did get land sooner. Jacob's people go into eventual slavery. And that's because being God's doesn't mean it's always going to feel great, that it's always going to go well. You can't interpret that the fact that you are in pain even means you made a critical mistake. That does not always lead to the, the right answer. It was a difficult place to be, but it worked for their benefit. Though for generations, they would not have felt that way. Edomites, that's, those are the descendants of Esau living in freedom in the north, and they are living in slavery down south in Egypt. But God had a plan. In Egypt, their numbers increased beyond the Edomites. They, they grow and grow and grow in this protected environment that though they are slaves, they are wards of a greater state, and they grow in incredible numbers, so much so it makes the Egyptians nervous how numerous the Hebrews are becoming. It was an incubator, albeit a painful one, for a growing nation. They did wait longer to come into their inheritance than the Edomites did. But when the day came for them to possess it, they were so great in number, they were able to occupy the fertile basin, to take the promised land and to live in it in numbers that the Edomites would never know. You cannot say God's forsaken me in hard times. Really, I want you to reflect on your life for a minute. If we're remembering, remember now today your story. Did you not get some of the best things in your life from your worst moments? The hardest times, the crucibles of life are when some of the deepest, most fruit-bearing things of your life transferred and grew. That it was there in those hard places when equipping happens, when humility happens, change happens, when we're willing to make changes we were not willing to make before because we were too comfortable to say yes to God. Jacob becomes Israel, Esau becomes Edom. And God's love and compassion has been on Israel. I want you to hear this comparison of these two brothers and these two nations in the book of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? A question asked by people who have faced such incredible hard times. God has put them, into, uh, put them out into Babylon, restored them back. They've been fighting. It has been hard. It has been difficult. How have you loved us, Yahweh? Tell us that. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved you, Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland. 
and left his inheritance to desert jackals. One nation became a Messiah, and the other has been erased from the face of the earth. Or one nation receives the Messiah, I mean. And the other erased from the face of the earth. A warning that comes up in Psalms often, don't envy the wicked. God lo- the son that God chastens, gives some hardship to, grows, that's the one he loves. If he's giving you a hard time, if, if it's been difficult, he's preparing you for something far greater. He moves on to the Exodus. Then I sent Moses and, uh, and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there and brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. God subdued one of the greatest, the greatest nation. It's one thing to conquer Canaanites, but to beat Israel back, that's unbelievable. From the onset of this thing, their secret weapon is revealed to them. Victory for you will come by your connection with God. My brother, when he was in peewee football, I don't know, he's probably like six or seven. They won state. He peaked early. (laughs) Uh, They won state, and there was this secret weapon, little kid named Bobby, not the tallest, but this kid was like a greased up gnome. You could hand him the football. They called him first down Bobby because he got a first down every time. So it was always the same thing. The games were like, all right, go, try this, try that. All right, give it to Bobby. All right, here we go. And Bobby basically won state. Like, yeah, they all, it was was a team effort of little guys, but Bobby was like the chief little guy. He was the secret weapon. The thing to remember for them is that from the onset, in all conflicts, every time a nation is against you, there's something that should go deep, that when the thunder claps, you reach for the hand of God. When something terrifying happens, that's who you go to, your secret weapon, the place where you run to, and victory will always be yours. It's important that we remember the things God delivered us from, because maybe, just maybe, it'll go so emotionally deep down that when the thunder claps next time, we reflectively reach for God and not for the maladaptive things we do when we're afraid. An interesting thing we often overthink is life east of the Jordan before they conquered, but he goes there next. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you and you took possession of their land. When Balak son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. And so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. This time in in, in Israel's history is unique because they're tired. They've reached the end of the journey. It's sort of a, we're going to wait till we get in there. And they don't get to wait. They park too close to the area they're going to attack, and it's like kicking the bees hive, and the Canaanites come out to meet them. And the conflict already begins. They're too close. It didn't need to go well for them to win. A lot of times we think if things go fine, if, if everything goes well, if I could, I could be blessed financially in this year and I might be okay and be able to pay my bills if inflation doesn't get much worse. 
It's important for you to know that if the beehive comes at you, that if, that if the problems really, really hit, you're still going to be okay. It's important for, the, for Israel to remember that when they were looking for rest and instead were given an assault, when everything came out at them, they're trying religious curses that God would turn against the person trying to curse them. Everything was coming at them. He was with them. They needed to remember that everything doesn't need to go well for me to be fine. They can go really, really poorly. All that matters is that God is with us. And that's true for you too. Everything doesn't need to go well for you to be fine. Things could go horrifically bad. And even if they bring their worst, they won't overcome you because God is your strength. Going on to the promised land, he says, Then they crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The cities of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, uh, and also the two Amorite kings. You did not uh, do it with your own sword or bow, so I gave a land which you did not toil in cities you did not build, and you lived in them and ate from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. The hornet is a very interesting reference. Uh, the hornet of terror is a promise in Exodus, uh, Exodus 23, and it's this, God promises to send the hornet of terror ahead of them to melt the nations in fear. It's a rather obscure promise. In fact, the interesting, it can be difficult sometimes to translate because hornet and terror have the same essential root word in Hebrew. And if you've ever had a hornet fly at you, I think you understand the word association. Uh, the quote says something really special, I think, about Joshua, though. That he can remember these obscure promises because he kept something that God asked him to do at the beginning of this book. Joshua, do not let the word of the law pass from your lips. Dwell on it. Remember it. And you will be victorious. He internalized this scripture to a more obscure promise of a really scary hornet. Not a real hornet. I know there's kids in here. It's not a real hornet, by the way. It's an allegory, probably, for something terrifying, like an angelic presence. Who knows? But by remembering that bizarre promise, I think it says something about him. Joshua remembered it. He kept it in his heart. And by remembering those promises, he can praise God for them when they come to pass. I'm telling you, if God speaks to you, write it down. I have a note in my phone where if I feel like God has a word for me, I write it down and I keep it. And sometimes when I'm feeling a little down and beaten down in my faith, I'll read that. And it builds me up every time because God has been incredibly true on what he's promised. Times that it is, it's, it's spooky accurate that I'll read it. And I'm like, I felt like I was supposed to, like that was a phrase I heard. So I punched it in, like, we'll just see. And now months, years later, it, it means something incredibly deep. You need to remember the things God says to you. Keep them on your mind because when they come to pass, you can give them honor for those things. Joshua concludes with, uh, he's kind of like a father at this point, and he's putting some of that parent guilt on them. I love this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates and the river, uh, the Euphrates River in Egypt, and serve the Lord. 
But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There is a great superiority of God. He has recanted their entire religious history. Don't return to the Euphrates gods across the river that your ancestor Abraham worshipped. They were dead gods and they were worth leaving. Don't return to the gods of Egypt whom the Lord crushed right in front of you. Nor return to the gods of the Amorites whom God completely destroyed before your very eyes. Don't go back to these other gods that have been proven inferior, but courageously move forward in God's newness in your life. Don't go back to the comforts of your life that have proven inferior to God. There, there's a proverb that says that we return to our former sins like a dog returns to its vomit. That we go back to things that have proven so inferior. The moment God is better than something, stick with that. To not be drunk on wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God is superior. He brings victory to your life all the days of your life, and he is the God worth serving. Last Sunday, we were praying for Gil Warner because it looked like his time to come uh, to pass was, was really close. He died that night. Um, he died Sunday night. I went to go be with Linda last week, and I sat down with her, and um, it, it, she, she, she was in a very raw place, but she had a story she just needed to tell me. Uh, through tears, through her best efforts, she, she told me the most incredible story. You see, Gil, if you ever met Gil, he used to go to church. He was a former pastor. He was a man of great joy. He was always happy. And, and it encouraged me. I was like, you can serve God all your life and be happy as a kid in a candy shop. That's good news. Always happy, always willing to pray, always willing to encourage. And the pain got so bad with his cancer at the end that, that Gil didn't feel like Gil. He never complained, but the pain was so great. They were giving him everything they could to stop it, but it was still there. And it was so hard for Linda to see him like that, to watch Gil not be Gil right at the end. She said for five days, he was in so much pain and suffering that he couldn't eat or drink. And it was just one day after another, and her and her family, they were praying, God, please just take Gil. We, we can't watch this suffering any longer. And she, she was in tears telling me this. You could still, you, she still felt it. Just praying, God, please, I can't watch this anymore. I love this man. Just take him home to be with you. And they prayed day one, two, three, four. And she got to a point where she started to get angry. And she said that she, she felt offended at God and wanted to say, God, why won't you do it? And she felt immediately convicted and the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, I'm in charge of when Gil dies, not you. You are trying to take control. You are not in control, it's me. On day five, hospice nurses are coming and a new hospice nurse comes in named Rebecca and Gil died. And she was getting Gil ready, she's taking the, the leads off of him and she's taking the, the stuff off his face and cleaning him up uh, so that he can become and collected and brought away. And as she's doing that, if you don't know this about Linda, Linda is an incredible evangelist. If you meet her, she will ask you if you know the Lord within about 90 seconds. So she she's, wipes her tears away, she's completely heartbroken, and she says, 
uh, do you know the Lord to Rebecca? And Rebecca says, I, uh, I was raised Catholic. I, I, I really don't know. I, like, I felt lost lately, and I don't know. And she said, well, have you, been, have you been born again? She goes, I don't even know what that means. And she said, why don't you come sit at the table with me, and I could tell you all about it. And she got a little nervous and said, I'm going to finish taking care of Gil, and then I'll come over and sit with you. So she finishes up her job, and she sits down with Linda. Linda tells her the gospel, and Rebecca was born again. She said the prayer. She got saved right then and there. And as Linda was done praying, she felt the Lord drop this understanding on her. Gil had to die that day. Had he not gone to day five, Rebecca wouldn't have gotten there. Gil was a minister all his life. He and Linda did ministry together, and that man went out swinging. That until, even if he didn't choose it, he was there at the end, still holding up his corner, still being faithful. I'd imagine if we could go to Gil now, we'd say, Gil, would you, would you die five days sooner before the pain got unstoppable? Or would you endure five days for Rebecca? He would tell you he endured his whole life that people would know the Lord. He would stick through the last five days. It was an amazing story. Gil fought the good fight. He ran the race that was laid out for him. He secured what the Lord told him to do, and he was faithful until the end. Linda told me it was, it was touching for her because even in his passing, she got to do ministry with Gil one last time. Rebecca got up and left the room, and she turned to Gil, and she said, Thank you, Gil, for enduring till the end that she could know the Lord. There is this torch that gets passed from Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to those after them. Few held on to it. Judges did, gets passed to kings, prophets, evangelists. It comes to us still. It went to Gil and it passes on to Rebecca. This call to faith for a kingdom that's worth living and dying and suffering for. A kingdom that does not fail where Gil's pain even wasn't in vain, but did something incredible. The meaning of the book still stays with us as we reflect and it gets passed on. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, church. Don't be afraid to live for this kingdom and to do the things God has called you to do. It doesn't have to go well for you. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be, feel like the right time to expand the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to feel like the right moment. The only thing that matters is, is God with us? We remain with God as we remember him, give him thanks, build memorials. This book is full of them on riversides, on hilltops. The book itself, a memorial, Israel, do not forget what the Lord did to drive the nations out in front of you. Remember what God has done for you. Remember them, write them down on your hearts. Remember what God did in your families, what God did in your relationships. We keep God this way and courage erupts from such a place. I know I'm asking you all to stay five minutes later right now, but I think this is important. It's something I really wanted us to do. I would love for us to get into groups of about three to four. And I want you to share with each other something God did in your life whether it's many years ago, whether it's recent, but something you feel like is worth remembering that God would do something that big in your life. And if that really freaks you out and you're uncomfortable, 
we don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I encourage everybody to share it. So we are going to take five minutes. So keep that in mind that you don't go. Uh, you respect each other's time. We want everyone to have a chance to share. But uh, get into circles. If you have, uh, you can be in a circle with your family, but try to mix up, get people that are non-family, and we're going to take five minutes and we'll come back together.